morning and a welcome to each of you. Welcome to uh, our visitors. Thankful that you're here with us this morning, and I trust that our time together can be a blessing and an inspiration. I find it amazing how the Spirit of God moves in a service, just from the devotion and the songs and then uh, even our Sunday school and then the message today and how this all ties together. I find that a tremendous blessing. It was good to hear about your story and your trip, Alvin. It sounds like you had a, a thumb-biting, hair-pulling experience also through your highlights, too. And uh, It's amazing to think, too, of how it, just about the opposite part of the world, how the Spirit of God moves in those places also. That's exciting that, that God moves all around the world. Different cultures, uh, the way things the way people do things so different, and yet one God. That is an incredible gift and a blessing to serve an unchanging God. We heard about that in our devotions too. So looking, think of a message today. George Barna is an analyst who specializes in studying trends in America as they affect the evangelical church and he and his team of researchers try to determine where the church is losing ground and the trends that various groups are taking and also where the gospel message is, is enhancing and growing. Back in 1990 he wrote a book and one of the some of the things that he mentions in that book about the church is, is how that it is growing comfortable with the culture and how it is increasingly adapting to the culture and he recognized back in, in the 90s how that the culture is rapidly changing and that the church is losing ground and being influenced by the American society and that was over 30 years ago and American culture has changed a lot since that we all realize that we live in a time where, where people want to serve self and it's about who I want to be and who I determine who I am. Or even that I say that, or I determine who God says he is and what he says is right and wrong. So we, we live in that kind of culture. It's about living and doing what I feel is good and right. And so that I have the right to determine how I want to live and who I want to be, rather than having God or others or even the church telling me or encouraging us how to live. We know that God's word doesn't change. It's the same. And yet people want to change those things. That's the kind of mindset that is, has a way of creeping into the church today. And so where do we find ourselves in 2023? And I realize these things have been happening for years and years, uh, ever since the fall of man. Man has been bent to living and doing the things of their own pleasure and desire. Where do we find ourselves in 2023? How are we influenced by the society around us? Are we being led by culture? Or are we being led by the Spirit? 
The title for the message today is Living and Serving in the Spirit. And our text is there where Larry had read, continuing to go through the series here in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. We're looking at these verses today. And at the time that Peter wrote this letter, which was about 30 years after the resurrection of Christ, Christianity was, was spreading so rapidly that it was becoming a threat to the Roman Empire. as well as to the Jewish religious leaders of that time. The Romans were polytheistic. They believed that there were many gods and that all gods were equal. The Christians were monotheistic. There is only one God, and he is sovereign over all. As Christians, that's what we believe. God is sovereign. He is over all. I alluded to that, how that God is the same in another country as he, as he is in this country. There is one God, and he is sovereign. And so when the Roman Christians refused to worship the false idols and bow to the Roman Empire as God, they were accused of undermining the authority of the Roman government. And so the order was given to persecute them, to try to squelch the, the believers, to just try to what they thought was rebellion. And to escape this persecution, many of the believers fled throughout that, the Roman Empire in various areas to try to get away from the persecution. But it seemed like no matter where they went, they, they still faced severe, severe persecution here in these number of years where Peter is writing this letter. Here in verse 1 in our text, Peter encourages the believers to embrace suffering. And Peter again uses the example of Jesus. And this is a number of times mentioned here in this letter about Jesus' suffering, the example of his suffering, and how that, that impacts us. And Peter encourages the, the believers here to embrace that. Jesus suffered not for wrongdoing. He suffered for doing right. Jesus suffered as a just person for the unjust and for the unrighteous. And when he suffered, he still acted righteously. We know how Jesus responded. He didn't retaliate evil for evil. And so Peter is saying that just as Jesus suffered, we need to understand that we're going to suffer also. And we need to expect that and embrace that. Peter says we're to have that kind of mindset. As Christ has suffered in the flesh, he says, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. And some translations use the word attitude there instead of mind. And so the question is, what was Jesus' attitude as he suffered on the cross? What kind of attitude or what kind of mind did Jesus have that we're to have also? What was his attitude as they drove the nails into his hands and as he hung there on the cross for hours? What kind of attitude did Jesus have? What was his insight toward sin? What was his understanding of God's desire for you and me? 
to be free from sin's environment in our lives. Think about that. What was Jesus' attitude as he was facing that suffering? I think this verse refers back to eight, uh, verse 18 in chapter 3, where it says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. We know that Jesus died once and for all. He was done with sin. And he paid a terrible price to set us free from sin. And now he says that sin doesn't have anything to do with us. Does this mean, Peter says, to arm yourselves with the same mind or attitude. And the word arm here has the idea to equip or implement. We are equipped to overcome sin, to cease from sin. And the word cease here means to stop or finish. Does this mean that we never sin? For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I think we know, we all know that as long as we're in this flesh, this fleshly body, we are capable to sin. But there has been a way provided for us that we are not enslaved by sin, that we're not overpowered by sin. And so we are actually able to stop sinning. We are able to do this because of Christ. In and through Christ, we have the ability to stop sinning. Now, I didn't say that you will not sin, but we have the ability to not sin. Jesus came to do the will of the Father, and he was willing to do whatever it takes to accomplish the will of his Father. And that meant he had to go through a lot of pain and suffering and unfair treatment to the point that he died. But he was willing to do it because it was the Father's will. That's the kind of attitude that Jesus had. Oswald Chambers says this, No healthy Christian ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. And when we're bent on doing God's will, the thought of suffering doesn't stop us from doing the will of God. Jesus knew that he was going to suffer, but that didn't make a difference on whether he followed through on it or not. He knew what he was going to have to face, but he was willing to face that suffering so that we can be set free. I think that's the same kind of mindset that we have to have. Just because I am a Christian does not mean that I will not suffer. Doing the will of God will mean that you will suffer at times. 
We know very little about physical or persecution because of our faith. And one of the fastest growing churches in the world today is, in, from what I understand or what you hear, is in Iran. And there are many Muslims that are turning from Islam and embracing Christianity. And the Christian church there in Iran does not have churches to gather in because that would no way be safe. And they don't necessarily have a core leadership and a, a place of meeting. But it continues to grow. And when they were asked, somewhere, somewhere along the line, someone asked them how this is happening. And the response was this. Converts run from persecution, but disciples are willing to forsake the world and cling to Jesus, even if they have to die for him. Think about that. Converts run from persecution, but disciples are willing to forsake the world and cling to Jesus, even if they have to die for him. That's a, that's a true follower of Christ, a disciple when they're willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. For them, Jesus is all that matters, and they're willing to suffer if need be. 2 Timothy 3.12 is very real to these people. It says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Turn with me to Romans Chapter 5. I want to read a few verses here. Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Here we can see what suffering or what tribulation produces. It's perseverance, it's character, and it's hope. And when the Spirit of God is within us, we have a hope that empowers us to look beyond our suffering. That is the attitude that Jesus had. Instead of living in order to fulfill our fleshly desires and lusts, we, we live with a higher purpose to live the rest of our earthly lives for the, for the will of God. That's the purpose. That's the mind that we have like Christ did. This is God's desire for us. And that's his plan for us, to, to, learn, to pattern our lives and lifestyle after his will. Galatians 5.16 says this, I then walk in the Spirit, and ye, and ye shall not... I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In verse 3 in our text, here in 1 Peter 4, Peter mentions some of the sins that the people were involved in. I'm going to read verse 3 there. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in, in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Peter mentions these sins as something in the past. 
He says, for the time past of our life. This is something that they were, these are some of the sins that they were involved in. But he's saying now that they're walking in the, in the spirit. They're no longer in, involved in these things. And Peter makes it clear that these things are not part of the child of God. This is not something that church-going people are a part of. Where are they? I think as time goes on, we see church-going people being more and more involved in some of these things. People are being influenced by the culture, by the American society. In Galatians 5, 17 through 21, I'm not going to take the time to read those verses there, but there again, it mentions some of these very sins, a number more, a number more sins there in, those, in that passage. But then it does also say about them that whoever is taking part of this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sin, God cannot tolerate sin, and it will not enter into his kingdom. He gave us the power to overcome sin and to stop sinning. In verse 5 and 6, here in our text, we're reminded that there is an account that we are going to give. There's a day of judgment. Now realize that the, the concept of judgment is not something that is very popular in, our, in today's world. Because people want to convince themselves that they are only accountable to themselves for their actions. Judgment is considered too harsh and inappropriate when you think of God being a God of love. People like to think of him, he's, he's a God of love. How will he pour any judgment on anyone? And yes, God is a God of love, but God is also a God of justice. He gave us the freedom to choose, and our choices are significant. And there are consequences that are going to be paid in the future if we do not take care of the sins that we have been involved in. And even as Christians, we, we're going to give an account of our life and our choices to God. Our salvation is not necessarily the issue but we do have to answer for the choices that we have made. And I don't know that I fully understand how this is all going to be, but we're going to come before him and give an, give an account for everything that we've done. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. If we're living in the spirit, if we're living in God's will, we don't have to fear this day of judgment, but we're going to give an account, no matter what we've done. But I'm thankful that I can stand before a God that is righteous, a righteous judge, and he's going to judge righteously and fairly. But he's going to know and does know everything I do, and I have to give an account for that. I want to focus on verses 7 through 11 here at the end of this.
portion that we're looking at today. Because if we're walking in the Spirit and if we're living according to God's will, and when we have the end in mind, it, it makes a difference or it impacts of how we live and the things that we do. And I think the, the challenge is to, to daily think about the limited time that I have on this earth. Because if I have that in mind, if we have that in mind, I believe it makes a difference in what we do from day to day. And I know I don't nearly often enough think about that this could be my last day. Because what would I do differently if, it, if I knew that this was my last day on earth? Would I live differently? And so God help us that we have more of that mindset. Jesus knew when his time was coming, but he was willing to go there. For us, we don't know when that time is. But somehow we need to grasp it to live that way because it impacts what we do. There are four things that Peter mentions here that have an impact on, on how we live as God's people. The first one is prayer. Verse 7 says, but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. In the NIV it reads, The end of all things is near. Therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Now prayer is, 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 is a unique thing and an opportunity that we have to communicate and talk with God. And according to this verse, it, it takes a clear mind it takes a self-control, and it takes self-control to be able to pray effectively. James 5.16 says, Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So it's, it's quite clear that how we live affects our prayers. God desires that our praying is effective and so we need to live soberly and with self-control paul says that we're to pray without ceasing it's an ongoing thing that we do daily and prayer takes discipline prayer takes commitment but i believe that the more time that we spend with god the more prayer is a part of our life even as we go about our daily activities. And it does matter what we do and how we live. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Here again, it has to do with how we live, that your prayers be not hindered. Are your prayers effective? And am I living in a way that promotes effective prayers? The second thing here is charity. And he talks about love. Verse 8, And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. It's a fervent charity. It's a loving one another deeply. And notice that it says, above all things love fervently this is important and the idea of fervent here has the idea of loving others with with a brotherly affection 
to the degree that you almost become exhausted. I don't know that we like to think about becoming exhausted in loving, but this is the idea of fervent here, a fervent love, something that you're putting yourself into, that you are active. This is a fervent love that we're to have for each other. It's like an athlete that is straining to, to the finish line. They're exhausted till they get there. How well do I live like that? Peter quotes from Proverbs 10, 12 here. Hatred stirreth up strife, but love covereth all sins. And here again, you can look at this verse and say that all we need to do is love because it takes care of everything and it covers everything. Here again, this is not a statement about salvation or that we do not point out our sins or our faults so as to be corrected. We are reminded that love is long-suffering and that we're to bear with one another and that we will not hold grudges when faults and offenses are committed against us. But love does cover a multitude of sins. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, familiar verses. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. Is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things. Believeth all things. Hopeth all things. Endureth all things. Love can handle anything. We face difficult things in life. But love covers a lot of things. The third thing here he talks about is hospitality. And this goes along with the fervent love. It says we are to give hospitality without complaining. And I think that is significant there, that, he, that that is with that. Doing it without complaining. You know, we can show hospitality. And uh, I don't know if you've ever, maybe this exposes a little bit, but sometimes you, you have people at your place and, and after they leave, you're like, you're just kind of glad they left. You know, hospitality without complaining You know, if we offer hospitality and complain about it, what, what does that say about us? Where, where is our love? As believers, we show hospitality to, to others and, and to each other. It, it's not done to put on a show, but out of love. Romans 12, 9 through 10. Let love be without dissimulation. And that word dissimulation means hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. So if we're just doing it for a show, it, it really doesn't, it's not effective. It doesn't mean much. And, and our nature tends to do that. We, we tend to do things for, to make us look fairly good and to put on a show. But here he, he says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. In honor, preferring one another. And verse 13 says, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Hospitality is a part of believers. 
verse 10 and 11, the fourth thing that we want to look at is serve God and others by exercising the gift you have been given. As believers and being filled with the Holy Spirit, we, we all have been given a gift. And we are to use that gift to serve others. And the Greek word, word, the Greek meaning of this word gift is that which is freely and graciously given, favor bestowed. So this is a gift from God, and we are to use this. Peter encourages us to use this gift for the honor and glory of his kingdom. And notice the two words that he uses here in verse 10. That is the minister and stewards. The word minister there, some translations use the word serve. And serving means to perform duties, render assistance. And if we have gifts from God, then we're obligated to serve others. If that's a gift that God has given you, that's really what you're obligated to do. The other word is stewards. Some translations there may have faithfully administering. That word means manager of a household or property. You're a steward. You're a manager. And we, we know that a steward works for his master or his owner. And a steward is responsible to see that the needs of all the members of the household are met. That's what a steward does. And a, and a steward is held responsible by the master to fulfill those responsibilities and to do it well, to, to complete those responsibilities. When God gives us gifts, we're to, we're, we are to see ourselves as servants of others and stewards of God's property. That's what Peter is telling us here. Servants of others and stewards of God's property. The end of verse 10 says, As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God gives us gives various gifts to, to his people. And various people will use them in different ways. But we're encouraged to use the gift that God has given us. And I realize that you can go in, in a lot of different directions with with gifts and the, and the gifts that God has given. But we are responsible to use the gift that God has given us. And maybe sometimes you wonder, well, what is my gift? And maybe you've tried to do different tests and things that, to try to figure out your gift. But I believe as we avail ourselves, as we have the mind of Christ living in God's will and are obedient to him, following him, he will use us and our gift we will learn what that gift is and enhance on that gift. We're to exercise that gift. He talks about speaking and about serving here in verse 11. But God provides, notice that, that he does, that God, God provides this gift. This comes from God. This is not something of our own. And I think we need to be careful with gifts because sometimes one person will use their gift will exercise their gift in a, slightly in a different way that another person will with the same gift. And sometimes our giftings can actually cause contention because we maybe get jealous of how another person can do something. But let's recognize it as a gift and not something that is 
to be pulling us apart. God has given us a gift to build his kingdom. There are, more, there are some gifts that are more noticeable than others. There are some gifts that are more behind the scenes. But that doesn't mean that one is more important than another. They're all very significant, and God has them there for a purpose. Now, Peter doesn't exhaust the list of gifts here, he, he gives, but he only gives us some examples. But what is clear is that each person has received a gift, and it is the responsibility of each believer to exercise them for the building of his kingdom. And what is the purpose of these gifts? He ends it well there in verse 11. It makes it very clear what the purpose of these gifts are. It's not about who I am and what I'm doing. But he says there in verse 11, and I want to end with this here in verse 11. That God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is the purpose of our gifts, to honor and glorify God. Kneel with me for a word of prayer.